lot of the discussions around wine um, and winemaking and winery decisions are have seemed to place philosophy and style above everything else. But economics is is a major factor as well. Hello, and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. As always, I'm your host, Zach Jabal, sommelier and wine writer, and joining me today on the show is a fellow Psalm and wine writer, Kelly White. She's the author of Napa Valley Then and Now, as well as the senior writer at Guildsom, and you can find her writings at guildsom.com or on social media at Kelly White Wine. We'll talk Napa, British Columbia, and lots else right now. Joining me today on Disgorged is Kelly White. She's a sommelier, winemaker, and the author of Napa Valley Then and Now, as well as the senior writer at Guild Somme. Uh, Kelly, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's start with uh, with a simple question. Uh, how did you first get interested in wine? Oh, um, completely by accident. I think uh, probably the same way a lot of Americans uh, get into wine professionally. I was in college in the Boston area, and I needed a nights and weekends job. But I was one of these really cool kids that didn't drink before I was 21. So um, it never even occurred to me to consider a wine shop or anything like that. I was on Beacon Hill and applying in a family. My father was a, a contractor and I kind of grew up around tools, although don't ask me to build anything now. But I was comfortable with, uh, with a certain level of woodworking. And so I applied for a summer job. But I needed full-time work. They only had part-time work, and they said, but the wine store across the street is also hiring. So I just kind of ambled across the street. It was a beautiful little shop um, in Beacon Hill, and they hired me, even though I didn't know anything about wine, and threw a lot of books and a lot of bottles my way, and and, uh, and that's really how it got started. Very cool. And in those early days uh, in Boston, what was what were people excited about? What were people drinking when they came in and bought wine? So this was probably, this was around uh, 2001, 2002 and this particular shop was like the high-end shop on charles street so it was a lot of um politicians and politicians wives and people were in this particular shop interested in a in a, in a higher level of wine and there was i think a lot of um like oaky california chardonnay being sold out of that store and a lot of Bordeaux, um a fair amount of burgundy it was a it was a it was definitely a not your average uh wine shop and that it focused mostly on high-end wines but later on i managed my own shop um not mine that i that i owned but i became the general manager and wine buyer for a store in a harvard square and in that store with a younger clientele, people were starting to get uh, really interested in organic wine. Um, and, you know, people people weren't really talking about biodynamic wine yet. I remember the first um, Nicholas Jolie seminar in New York City was around that time. And I took the bus to New York and went to it. It was um, at least in the circle I was in in Boston at around that time. And now this is probably 2003, 2004, was starting to get really interested in this idea of um, more holistically made wines. Cool. And then at what point did you make your way out to California? Because you're now based in Napa, right? Is that right? Yeah, I live in Napa. I've been here for the past seven years. Um, I spent uh, six years in New York City in between Boston and and California. So um, Boston, New York City, and then Napa seven years ago. Mm -hmm. 
And was Napa because you wanted to be somewhere where wine was being made or was it just a a job? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Basically what happened was uh, my now husband and I were both uh, sommeliers in New York. Although actually I hadn't, I was working for a wine importer, I guess at this moment in time when the market crashed in New York and um, you know, I don't know if you were working uh, in restaurants at that time, but I definitely was. There was all the, (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> there was a lot of, especially in New York, there were the 1% um, protests, and there was a real uh, sudden hitting of the brakes as far as um, the consumption of high-end wine goes. And uh, shortly after the crash, I started working at Veritas. So that restaurant was still kind of figuring out um, how to how it was going to survive in this new economy. And it did well for another, you know, two, two and a half years or so before it ultimately closed as well. But there was a kind of a feeling that, um, you know, maybe this this luxury goods, sommelier, high-end restaurant um, career path is not, you know, the forever career. And so what's the next step? And so uh, we had a we had a kind of a five-year plan, 10-year plan, <clears throat> 15-year plan conversation. And one thing that both of us had always wanted to do was to learn how to make wine. I had worked at Harvest in Burgundy, in 2005, which was an experience that I really liked and thought I'd like to go back to that. Scott hadn't done anything like that. So we started casting around to move to wine country anywhere. We came very close, actually, to move into the Mosul. Um, mm. But, you know, they were having the same similar economic issues that we were. And it was a very, very difficult time uh, to get work visas uh, to work in Germany. They were um, really not um, not willing to work with us you know we had lawyers the winery in question they had lawyers working on um getting this this work views and and in the end they just didn't come through so Mm. we got connected to napa um through a chef that scott had worked with in seattle uh years ago who is now a winemaker in napa and heard we were looking to move to wine country somewhere and made a few phone calls and connections and uh and we got uh, a job out here so when you made your way out to out to Napa, was was there an idea that you might be involved in in wine production at some point? Because I know you guys make a little bit of wine now, or was it really just um, some of the just the difference in being around it, even if you're not making it? No, we definitely wanted to make it, um, and and we couldn't. We weren't at a place in our lives where we could sort of stop working and go to school or just professionally intern for a while while we started to understand it. So we we knew we needed to go somewhere where there were like enough white tablecloths, let's say, <laughs> to um, so that we could support ourselves while um, what we were learning about about winemaking. And um, so this this very much um, constructed the job that we ended up taking because uh, we knew that we couldn't both hold down full time restaurant jobs and learn how to make wine. The hour, I mean, as you know, that the hours are a little bit um, uh preventative for pursuing too many extracurriculars and you know so, it's really just a um, you could have done it if um sleeping was not a thing you were going to do yeah exactly if you can take that out then yeah. it would have been no problem um but we but scott spoke to leslie rudd who owns the restaurant that we're still affili- affiliated with and um he allowed us to share the wine directorship which was a little bit unusual and so when we came here in 2010 we were actually effectively co-wine directors and you know we would alternate nights who was working and it gave us enough free time for us to you know start doing internships and just learning and staging uh in wineries and also for me to work on my writing this is something that i was still pursuing at the time and um now scott is 
still the full-time wine director there. Uh, we've grown the wine program there to a point where we also have two full-time psalms underneath him working that are great. And then I'm still, you know, kind of butterfly on the floor uh, maybe once a month or so. Um, but I've, I've since transitioned to doing more writing and, um, and, 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 and we did end up um, launching our own wine brand about six years ago. So, um, but like you said, it's very small. So what you're saying is you only do like one or two or 10 things with your time. Yeah, we keep we keep uh, people keep telling us that we're doing California way wrong because I don't think we stopped running since we got here. It's been a it's been a hustle, but it's but it's been wonderful. California's been very very good to us, and it's been um, it's been a wonderful time. So let's talk a little bit about writing about wine, um, because obviously um, a lot of what you do is, especially now, is is writing oriented. Um, and I first kind of wanted to just chat about um, r- the book you wrote about Napa Valley. Um, Despite the sort of, um, let's say, uh, uh, fame of the region and the history of the region, how hard was it to kind of put together all the various, um, you know, history, the disparate threads? Um, Were people, was there a lot of that information already out there? Did you have to really kind of search through archives? Were people willing to talk? What was that? What was that process like? Well, it was interesting because when we when we got here to build this wine program at Press, we started almost immediately buying older vintages. And so this was something, there were a couple of restaurants had some older stuff at the time around here, but it was really kind of a new thing. And so the winemakers were naturally very curious. The community was very curious to see how these wines were tasting, what the response was going to be, et cetera. And what happened is very quickly, people started to look to us, even locals, even local vintners started to look to us um, to answer questions about these older wines. And it wasn't very easy to find the information. Um, I got very frustrated very quickly by a lot of the winery websites or places you would normally look things up. There was almost a kind of a, a redaction of history. So if you went to X Winery's website, you know, and they'd been around for 25 years, you had no chance of finding any information about whoever made the wine before the current winemaker. Um, you know, it was just this, this kind of constant rewriting of history to promote whatever's new and make it seem as if the what's now was sort of what was eternal. And so it wasn't very easy to find this information at all. And there was very little being written about uh, older vintages from California, you know, full stop. Um, there, that's changed a little bit now. You can there's more of an interest, there's more writing about it. But at the time, we were sort of, you know, we didn't know how these wines were going to drink. It was all very um, prospective and experimental. And we had a lot of great luck. Part of the reason why I wrote the book. And the other was that when we were moving out here, um, we came from working with mostly European wines and kind of wanted to study up on Napa. We were going to be working with it all Napa wine list and living in Napa. I mean, the we wanted to sound like we knew at least a little bit of what we were talking about. And, uh, and I remember when I, when I worked that harvest in Burgundy, I brought Clive Coates coat door with me in my suitcase, which is, you know, a very big book mm-hmm. and, uh, and read it, read it cover to cover both before I got there and, you know, at night after I was done working harvest. And I wanted to find best sort of book like that for Napa. And I was surprised, uh, that it, that it didn't exist. There's a lot of, um, Obviously, critics pay a lot of attention to Napa, but beyond, you know, scores for current releases, there wasn't a lot of in-depth academic uh, research with two exceptions. One was a great history of Napa written by Charles Sullivan and then the Winemaker's Dance, which is a really interesting geological look at Napa Valley by um, Jonathan Swinshaw and David Howell. But other than that, there wasn't really, you know, one of these sort of classic wine books about Napa. And so I thought I could combine uh, my need for that with my interest in the older vintages and that's how the book sort of came to be 
So I'm looking forward to interviewing someone in, in a few years who talks about having moved to Napa and having tried to pack your bag in their suitcase. Hopefully I have that conversation. <laughs> it, it is, uh, it is not small. Oh, um, no. And, uh, so, so sort of uh, along those lines, I don't necessarily want to, uh, recap the book and I also don't want to focus just on Napa, but I'm really curious if you had to, if you had to sort of generally break, um, the history of Napa Valley into a few sort of discernible eras, uh, maybe let's, let's sort of look at 20th and 21st century. Cause the sort of pre or maybe post-prohibition, let's say, because the pre-prohibition stuff is super interesting. Um, but my understanding is, unfortunately, with outside of a few places, is sort of not, sadly, very um, very little of what was being done then is still continued through. Maybe that's wrong. I don't know. Maybe there's more vine material, more um, more winemaking that's uh, con- uh, sort of continued through that time. But, but wherever you, I guess, want to start, you're the expert. Uh, what are the sort of the discrete eras that people <laughs> should be aware of? Well, I mean, I won't dwell on it too much, but there was uh, one of the things that I was fascinated during my research was to find out how successful the wine industry in Napa and California in general was uh, in the 19th century. You know, in the in the 1880s and the early 1890s, there were there was a lot of vines here. There were something like 140 wineries at its peak. Um, and, and, you know, all that got wiped away during Prohibition, et cetera. And we wouldn't get back to those numbers until the 1980s. So. That was that's a it's a it's that's a very uh, interesting moment in time um, that a it was so successful and b it all went away so fast so that's one interesting thing prohibition obviously I think a lot of people know um, the nuts and bolts of that but it effectively with you know a couple of loopholes wiped out the industry here um, and certainly hobbled it hobbled its recovery um, so I kind of categorize the 30s 40s and 50s as as the recovery years, um, new wineries were starting here. New vineyards were were going in, but it was all very, very slow, and um, took a really long time to to catch on. And there were a lot of reasons for that. It wasn't just that um, the wine industry, you know, that so much damage had been done here, but also Americans weren't really necessarily drinking that much wine, and they certainly weren't drinking fine dry wine um, for a long time after Prohibition. So. Not just the wine industry, but the American palate was in a was in a state of recovery for those decades. Uh, things started to change in the in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties. Those were kind of the uh, I would say the second bloom of the Napa Valley wine industry, where you started to see an increasing velocity of winery openings during that time, especially after the Judgment of Paris in 1976, which was right around that time. Um, and, uh, which is right in the middle of that span. And uh, with each kind of passing year with more wineries, um, almost bringing in more money. And so during that period of time, the, the state model in Napa Valley shifted, whereas in the late 60s and the 70s, you see more um, proprietor winemaker types. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who came out here wanted to actually work the land. And as Napa Valley and winemaking in general became a little bit more accepted and a little bit more um, successful, you started to see more proprietor kind of estate Bordeaux models coming out here where people wanted their name on the bottle. They wanted to open a winery, but they didn't necessarily want to do the work themselves. And they started, you know, hiring winemakers, hiring vineyard managers, et cetera. So that was a, a mini evolution inside a particular stage in Napa. Um, and then you have the, the 90s and the 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s, which um, is a very interesting time. Uh, things were happening fast. Um, one of the major 
defining uh, moments for this era was the phylloxera, um, spreading of phylloxera in the late 80s. And uh, there were all of the much of the growth of Napa in the 80s was planted on AXR1, which is a rootstock that was um, better producing than the existing rootstocks at that time, but was eventually found not to be um, immune to phylloxera. So effectively, when those vines started failing in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a massive replant around here. And that was the that was when you had Napa Valley's makeover to what it looks like today. That was when Napa Valley committed on a whole to to Cabernet. That was when Napa's farming really took a hard look at Bordeaux and you started to see vertical shoot positioning and close planting. And it was also uh, young vines. It was clean vine material. You started to see the eradication of virus. And that really changed everything. Um, so in the 1990s, uh, you started to see also, um, this is when the cult wineries started to emerge smaller wineries, much more luxury focused. Um, and the wines were, were very successful on, um, with consumers and also in the aftermarket, the pretty robust economy during this decade. So you had these brands that would come out and they would sell for X, they'd get a certain score. And then suddenly the aftermarket prices were shooting up five, 10, 15 times. And that, that reverberated back onto those Napa Valley estates and kind of created the the pricing and the scarcity um, cycle that we're in today. But the wines from the 1990s, I think get unfairly maligned as being quote overripe because I do think there's a, there's been a lot of backlash in Napa about the current the style that's been sort of dominant for the past 20 years. But tasting those wines from the mid nineties, I, I think that there, there was a while before the ripeness got out of control. The wines from the 1990s are what show what I like to call benevolent ripeness where there's there's fruit and there's 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 punch and there's pop and there's um, volume certainly in those wines but there's also freshness and they've aged very well and there is there is a certain balance it really wasn't until the 1997 vintage which didn't really affect things until it hit the market in 2000 2001 where hang time and excessive you know 200 percent new oak and these things sort of became de rigueur so for me, it's really the first decade of the 2000s where Napa's reputation for just making really hedonistic, over-the-top wines kind of took hold. Um, and then, like the rest of the world, the economic crash in 2008 had a big effect on Napa. Um, so that I would say, I would say, would be the would be the era that we're currently in. Um, definitely was a knock against uh, consuming some of the more expensive bottles. Napa is a little bit protected from these economic moments just because there's so much wealth here, but it definitely had its effect. And one of the things that you saw rising at this time was the what John Bonet dubbed the the New California Movement happened very shortly after the economic crash. Uh, it really started percolating around 09, 010 in a serious way, and it was a new generation of winemakers, some based in Napa or some outside of Napa. Um, that were looking outside of the Bordeaux model. They were looking outside of Cabernet. They weren't um, interested in have, making very expensive luxury wines. Um, they were pulling cues from, you know, different parts of Europe, uh, the Mosul, Friuli, Austria, et cetera, and um, seeing what other um, types of wines that California was capable of. So it's been this period of exploration on that level. And then now, you know, people say that the, quote unquote pendulum is swinging away from monster ripeness to a more moderate place in California. And I, I, I would agree with that as a general trend, but I think you'll always still have here these big, you know, smash mouth, huge 
wines, um, there is an audience for them. But you do see the top brands now kind of pulling back a little bit from that. So it's an, it's an interesting moment in California right now. It feels like we're still in the middle of something. I did have a guest the other, uh, the other week ask or sort of complain that uh, all of a sudden it's become really hard for him to find really big oaky Chardonnay. And I was like, huh, that is a <laughs> that is not a complaint that I've heard before. But maybe it is. Maybe it's a little bit true. He's like, you know, even Rombauer is not as oaky. And I was like, well, I'm not so sure about that. But but maybe, but uh, I want to come back to one thing you were talking about uh, just sort of in passing, which was the judgment of Paris, because when you sort of uh, from the outside learn about the history of Napa, you, you hear about that. And it's always sort of been my unsourced, uneducated suspicion that that whole thing is a little bit overstated that like, you know, it's not. It, that that as important as that might have been, and obviously the press that it generated and the sales that it generated influenced the industry. I think it. I think it's a. Uh, and maybe you can uh, either tell me I'm right or wrong or both. Um, it, it's always been my sense that the growth was already happening, and the to some extent the reputation was already was already out there in some way. And this just is sort of a convenient like, oh, in seven, 1976, this happened, and then Napa was on the map. Yeah, absolutely. The the growth was already happening, um, and you can see that uh, not just in you know reading the numbers of wineries opened each year, but also something that I came across, which was very interesting, was um, in 1970, Bank of America, which was a major lender uh, in this area, especially for um, up, uh, young wineries, uh, produced a report for their investors that it was this huge multi-page report I have with charts and graphs, um, some of which are a little bit silly, that uh, talk about the future of the California wine industry as being something very investment-worthy. And that's very interesting that that document got produced in 1970, not just because um, it, it directly influenced the number of people that came here, but you know that 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 there were institutions looking at winemaking in California as a as as a fine as a sound financial investment at that point because only three years before that 1967 was the first year where Americans drank more dry wine than sweet wine. Um, three years later, the Bank of America, you know, is not going to roll the dice in this way. I mean, they were legitimately recommending to their investors that that California, the California wine industry, might be. Um, uh, something worth looking at. And so I've spoken to a, new, a numerous people, Tom Burgess from Burgess, John Schaefer from Schaefer, who said, you know, they were sort of casting about for a what's next um, step in their lives. And that that investment point, that investment report was the tipping um, point that got them to come to Napa, to come to California, to come to the wine industry. Um, so that there were things already happening beyond the judgment of Paris that seem like what the judgment of Paris um, gave the Napa Valley wine industry or the California wine industry is sort of more bragging rights. I think there is a lot of testosterone in, in, the, in Napa Valley, especially, and there's a love of being able to say, you know, oh, we kicked their butts or we kicked their butts. And this was, you know, uh, a seal of approval that we had kicked the French's butts. And I think that that was um, hard to let go of. Yeah, I can imagine that that even if the the actual veracity of that sort of uh, story is a little bit in doubt. It, it sounds good. It makes for a good, uh, it makes for good copy, I guess, in a lot of different ways. Um, I'm wondering about sort of modern Napa and the, and how the, maybe not so much the wine has evolved and the wine culture, but how it's evolved in, in sort of in, um, 
lockstep or maybe not with the food culture there because a the thing that I think um, makes uh, Napa and maybe to some extent Sonoma County um, dis- a little bit distinct in uh, American wine is and to some extent other regions in the world depends on where you are is there's you know this incredible food culture there that that is um you know also obviously tied into maybe the bay area but is its own distinct thing like what is what is the what is the food culture there like these days and and is it is it sustained solely by wine tourism is it is it what what drives it i guess well it's an interesting um it's an interesting question and it's a complicated answer because uh and it, and i think it's I got an lots issue of time for the... you can go into as much depth okay as good <laughs> it's an interesting issue because if you can if you look at the san francisco restaurant scene historically you know with alice waters and chez panisse um this was really the origin of the local vor um style of dining but if you talk to vintners in Napa, and I would say more of the blue chip vintners in Sonoma, they have a very hard time selling their wine in San Francisco. And so San Francisco, the food scene, I think, is is really um, wrapped its arms around uh, local farmers, local local produce, um, you know, local farms. And as well, they should. There is a great climate here for growing a lot of things, and um, and it makes sense. But a lot of the wine lists are still very heavily European influenced. And so that's a little bit of a disconnect. Um, and that new California wine movement we were talking about earlier has served to kind of remedy that a little bit where the wines are a little, are more food friendly in style. They lend themselves better to um, freshness of cuisine. Whereas the kind of stereotypical wines from Napa have gotten a little bit left behind. Um, and that, you know, people still think of Napa Cab as the steak wine, um, and there's really, you know, you don't think of California cuisine as being steakhouse, even though I and Scott work in a in, in a steakhouse in Napa Valley. Um, it's not really some a type of it's more of a New York thing, right, than yeah. a California thing. Cabernet doesn't really um, pair so with avocado. Exactly, and so and and you know, part of that is, and you know, that's not to say that it couldn't. And there's a lot of different styles of Cabernet mm-hmm. than what people generally associate with Napa coming out of Napa, but. On a whole, the style of wine coming out of Napa and then also, let's say, the super rich kind of high-octane Sonoma wines, they're not necessarily super versatile with a lot of different types of cuisine, especially the type of cuisine that Northern California is associated with. So it can be a little bit of a challenge. Um, However, you know, there's part of what I like to encourage is for people to you know, shake off that idea that Napa Valley is only one thing and to actually explore what's going on. And it's not just the new California movement either. There's a huge um, range of uh, expressions of both Cabernet Sauvignon and other grapes here um, that do work well with food. Obviously, the big, big stuff that most people know is um, not exactly an easy thing to pair. Uh, so it's, 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 it's interesting. I mean, on the restaurant side thing, living here, you know, they say that Napa Valley gets the second highest number of tourists outside of Disneyland. Uh, I, I think that's true. And so certainly the restaurant scene around here um, caters to that. Living here, it can be hard because there's not a lot of inexpensive options. There's a handful of things, but you get tired of them fast. The dining in especially Napa Valley is, you know, very geared towards the kind of high-end tourist clientele. So there's a lot of that. Not a lot of happy hours. Yes. No, not so much. You start to see local specials and things during the uh, during the slow seasons, during the winter months. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's it's there's there's a lot of tourists here. There's a lot of uh, 
visiting mouths to feed. Yeah. So when when you hear um, when you read copy or you hear someone or someplace talk about how their wines compare to Napa Valley or or that they're like Napa, do you just roll your eyes? Is that is that comparison? Uh, to me, that comparison seems uh, as sort of awkward and dated as as maybe a decade or two ago. People, you know, reflexively, if you made Pinot Noir, you compared yourself to Burgundy, or if you made Cabernet, you compared yourself to Bordeaux. Um, is uh, is Napa uh, it just its fame still the case that people are in other regions are always going to compare themselves, or or I don't know, is that is that just it seems silly to me, I should say. Well, I mean, I I, I guess I, I see less. Um, I see less of other regions comparing themselves to Napa in my personal experience and I see people within California comparing themselves externally. And I have to say, I think it's, you know, it gets in the way of, of really talking intelligently about wine. Uh, I can't tell you how many producers uh, that I've met with at the restaurant that have poured me their, their Chardonnays and they say, and this one is, is our Burgundian style Chardonnay, but they don't have any idea what that means. And usually they're just... <laughs> They're just that just means this is our one that was barrel aged, but it could be, you know, super heavy, oaky, residual sugar Chardonnay. It has no, very little resemblance to anything that I've ever had from Burgundy. So I think that, that these comparisons are necessarily very limiting. I think that they are kind of a marketing shortcut. Um, I don't know if, if, if this is what you're, you're referencing, but I was recently up in the Okanagan and as I was studying um, up on the wines and the wine regions and reading through um, some materials, there were a lot of references to Napa Valley. Um, but the wines, most of the wines that I had had at that point from the Okanagan Valley were, you know, super crispy Rieslings and, and Loire style Cabernet Francs. Uh, very, very little that I would have ever closed my eyes and thought, oh, this might be Napa. Um, <laughs> going up there, I understand a little bit more um, why they're making that comparison in that it's a surprisingly warm area um, that is capable in some places of ripening Bordeaux grapes, but it but it, it was curious that that was everybody's go-to um, because I don't, you know, the question I'm asking is, why are you making that comparison? What is it that, that you're hoping? What are you hoping to promote? And, mm-hmm. and uh, what kind of attention are you hoping to win? Well, um, Kelly, I got to say, maybe you should host the podcast because you totally just stole my transition from me. Um, oh. But yes, that was that was where I was going, which is that uh, you just... Uh, yesterday published a piece on Guildsom about uh, the Okanagan Valley or BC wine in general, mostly the Okanagan Valley. Uh, there's a little bit about the Similkameen and a few of the other growing regions. Um, and um, BC is, uh, I was up there um, as Facebook reminded me a year ago today. Um, from, uh, <laughs> and um, I, I was really not sure what to expect when I went up there, which is I think for most people who have limited exposure to the wine, which is pretty much anyone who hasn't been there or at least been up in uh Canada and British Columbia specifically to drink the wine because it's very hard to find otherwise. Um, I don't want to, again, just repeat what you wrote or um, you can, if you want, um, it's a nice piece. You're welcome to just read it. Um, but I encourage people, <laughs> I encourage people to go to uh, guildsom.com and read it themselves. Um, but uh, I was curious, you know, you, you had a couple of things in here that I really wanted to touch on. And one of them is sort of broadly um, this idea that you said, which is a thing I shared and was really struck by when I was there a year ago, which is that, um, when the when you get the really good uh, BC wines, and there are definitely those out there, they they are maybe more than any other wine I've had from anywhere else. Um, this incredible midpoint between what we consider old and new world styles, um, and and maybe you can. It seems like you share that that opinion, and assuming you do, maybe you can talk a little bit about what you mean when you write that. 
Yeah, and you know, I, I really paused writing that because I feel like that's a sentiment that I read a lot in wine writing. I feel like almost everyone, especially um, when people are writing about their own wines, like to say that they they straddle the new and the old world, and it's it's almost a meaningless statement because I think those wines are those lines are blurring. You know, you, you I've tasted as many sixteen percent cabernets from Bordeaux in the past year as I have from Napa, uh, and. There are definitely some really amazing, cool climate wines uh, coming out of California that, you know, if you taste it blind, you might assume were European. So it's, you know, it's, it, I struggled writing that, but I, but I thought it was important to communicate um, what I thought were the spirit of the wines because it's very hard to generalize the wines in that region because they really do span a huge range of styles, um, and that's partly because the region is just very, very diverse and quite long and. Uh, encompasses a whole bunch of different microclimates and soil types. But um, one of the things that that I thought resonated throughout all the wines was there was a great deal of enthusiasm for um, trying to figure out what the Okanagan, and I'm just speaking of the Okanagan here, what the Okanagan is and what it wants to do, especially among the newer, younger producers. And they were applying all sorts of different models. Some were um, looking to the Mozo um, for inspiration in making their Rieslings. Some were looking to the Loire Valley and saying, okay, well, you know, Cabernet Franc goes well here. You know, maybe Chenin Blanc or Sauvignon Blanc will also do well, you know, similarly nearby. Um, some, a lot of producers were looking to, uh, to Burgundy for better or for worse for the um, Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays. And there are there were wines I had that were arguably overripe, over oak, you know, kind of new world jammy, if you want to um, paint with a broad brush. But generally speaking, even the most you know, fruit forward wines still had this underlying tension and freshness that that I tend to associate with uh, with the old world. Just again, speaking very very broadly, mm-hmm. and and yet there was all this. This is a hotbed of experimentation and enthusiasm, and um, so it, it really felt, you know, at times it felt like I was in California or the Barossa or Washington, and then at times it felt like I was in 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 Austria or, or Germany. It was um, it was a very uh, it was a place that was informed by a lot of different influences, and you could feel it in the wines, but the wines themselves never really seemed overtly one side or the other if you were going to draw a line. They kind of straddled it, and I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, well, I I think it it does happen to be kind of fortuitous for um, BC Wine that they are coming of age in an era when I think it's less important than ever that you have a dominant style for a region. Like I think about, you know, what you talked about, about what happened in Napa, especially post Phylloxera and, you know, kind of all the vines got ripped up and what, what vine diversity there was, was pretty much um, erased in a sea of Cabernet and Chardonnay to some extent and a few other varietals, obviously. Um, You know, I think it's cool that there is not at, at this moment in the, in that place, a, a dominant varietal or two. Obviously, there's more plantings of some things than other. There's some things that seem to do better than others, but uh, it's diverse enough in terms of, uh, as you said, microclimates and um, and even stylistically, there's just so much going on that there isn't that risk of, oh, well, BC is known for X, so we're going to just plant X. Um, and I think I think in the long run that will be beneficial because th- there's no way if you if you go up there and you try things and you um, kind of look around that everyone should be growing 
you know, throughout even just the length of the Okanagan Valley, everyone should definitely not be growing Riesling or Chardonnay or Pinot Noir or Cabernet or Syrah or whatever the grape is. Um, different people should be growing different things, and thankfully they are. Yeah, it's, an, it's interesting that you mentioned that as a strength, and I think that that um, ultimately is true from a wine quality perspective. But I sympathize. I mean, I think that um, you know, to get the word out about a, about an emerging region, the the easiest and the quickest way to do that, and obviously the path that a lot of um, those producers and I think the regional promotional bodies are are grasping at is um, is to find like a you know their 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 old or new world um, twin, you know, their sister region, and say we're a lot like that, or we're on the same parallel, or we have you know similar growing conditions except maybe you know 200 more growing degree days or something like that um but 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 yeah it is an interesting time and it's an interesting time in wine because the culture really is favoring diversity so it might be a strength i think it certainly um behooves the young producers that are just getting started now they really have a blank slate they don't have the pressure to conform to a particular model um, per se up there, but it's that much harder to get your story out when it's a new story every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is definitely a a marketing challenge, true too. And and I, I've done, uh, you know, I've I've spent uh, some time talking with and and a little bit of time sort of helping um, some producers up there look at getting into the market here in Seattle and getting into the states in general. And you know, there's a lot of barriers. Some of them are cost related, and as you mentioned in the piece, you know, the one of the sort of blessings and curses for the BC industry is that um, up until at least very recently, they've pretty much been able to sell all the wine they make. Um, you know, through the winery, uh, or maybe with a little bit of distribution to Vancouver, say. Uh, and when that's the case, you will have very little incentive, especially short term, to sell your wine for quite a bit less to an importer, uh, so they can bring it into the United States and sell it at a price that's going to be attractive to people here who don't know the wine. Um, but it does seem like there's at least enough. Maybe it's the younger producers and things like that who look at you know who for maybe no other reason than ego and pride want their wine to be you know. Ha, you know, seen by the world and judged on the world stage, and if the only way to do that is to go to British Columbia, that's never going to happen. Yeah, and 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 in, and in the article, I made made mention of the Finger Lakes, but there's a similar thing happening in the Finger Lakes where um, there's relatively little export, and a lot of those wineries are really reliant on either exclusively the local market or including uh, New York City and Long Island um, in their sales, and. There's a handful of producers that have really made a, a point, like I think um, Element Winery is, is one of them, of, of exporting or of focusing on the export market almost to the point of eschewing the local market. Um, and I think, you know, that is, um, that is very admirable. I think it's hard work. There's, a, there's an expression that I heard recently that you never want to be first. Um, because you're doing so much of that uh, kind of thankless educational uh, ground laying work. But, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not, I think that a lot of the discussions around wine um, and winemaking and winery decisions are, have seemed to place philosophy and style above everything else. But economics is, is a major factor as well. I mean, I, I was, I remember being, um, very impressed talking to Steve Mathiason, who is a kind of local hero around here and certainly the poster child of the new California movement. When we were, I was discussing sustainable farming with him 
uh, and he mentioned, you know, that in order for a winery to be sustainable, it also has to be economically sustainable for mm-hmm. the grower. You know, they have to be able to make decisions um, that, that allow their business to thrive. And I can tell you, as somebody who, who's occasionally looked into um, selling wines in other markets, not even exporting, but just um, selling to a distributor, say, in New York, that the, the, the slashing of the money that you make is, is, is significant. You mm-hmm. know, these are not, um, these are not small decisions. And so, you know, it, I felt, I, I understand why a lot of the producers in uh, Okanagan and the Finger Lakes are happy to just sell to locals, but at the same time, you know, on a regional level, it would be great to get these more of these wines out there. They really are excellent. Yeah. Um, did you, uh, you kind of touched on this a little bit in the piece, but I was wondering, were there um, a couple of wines, either varietal or, or specifically, or specific wines from specific producers where you were like, you know, this is world-class? Yeah, I thought, you know, the, the, the sparkling, some of the sparkling wines I thought were extremely mm-hmm. exciting um on a from a, a range of different producers and it seems like uh there's kind of a culture of casual sparkling which is interesting because a lot of the producers that would say focus on chardonnay or focus on riesling might have then one sparkling wine to play with and 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 though generally sometimes those afterthoughts or those toy wines aren't as exciting as the main focus uh when it came to sparkling wine the quality across the board was was really high mm-hmm. uh and i had all kinds of sparkling wine the Blue Mountain is was really the first wine I ever had from British Columbia, a sparkling three years ago, um, where I thought, wow, this is this is incredible. Um, and they're made very much in the in the traditional method of champagne. And it shows they have that same kind of profile, a little bit of, you know, the, the apple and the bready flavors and you know, the bright, fine acidity and the fine bead of bubbles. But then you had producers like that were a little bit more experimental and interestingly for their model which kind of their production is split between champagne method sparkling wines and more pet nat um, sparkling wines their production is focused instead of pinot noir and chardonnay and there is pinot noir up there but on chardonnay and gamay Hmm. and gamay was another grape that i seemed to take very naturally to the okanagan i had gamays from various points uh in the okanagan north to south and in Similkameen, and they were often super exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked those wines a lot. I had some great Chardonnays. I had some bad Chardonnays too, but I think that's <laughs> just sort of Chardonnay's lot in life. And, yeah. um, and, uh, and I had a lot of really interesting Syrahs, but, you know, again, you, you could almost see Syrahs being of regional grapes because it really performed at all, you know, from top to bottom in the valley and the, mm-hmm. you know, Soyuz in the riper areas, it was more showy Syrah. And at the top, it was more kind of crunchy, crispy, um, light Syrah, but also very exciting. Um, but, you know, nobody at this point, I don't think is going to dedicate the entire region to Syrah, but there could be an argument made for that. Yeah. No, I mean, that was the Syrah. So the, the wines for me personally, when I was up there that I took away were, again, I agree with you, the sparkling wine. Um, I, did you have a chance to try um, any of the sort of extended tirage stuff that Summerhill Pyramid did? Um, because that was yeah. super cool to me. Yeah, they yeah I tried some of that stuff. I liked from Summerhill Pyramid. I I really liked their basic Blanc Blanc hmm. the best out of their range, um, but I didn't try everything. They make a lot of wines. So they do. From Summerhill Pyramid, <laughs> I probably tried ten wines, and it seemed like a drop in the bucket. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were doing some funky experimental stuff, which was 
interesting. Um, some of it was a little crazy, yeah. but, uh, but some of it was good. Yep. Well, you know, it's a, it's there's sort of this when you've been doing kind of uh, biodynamic stuff for as long as they have, you kind of there's a certain I think ex- expectation of weirdness that goes along with that. That if they didn't live up to, would, <laughs> would be a little bit of a disappointment. Um, I agree, Syrah to me that so the the wines that were really revelatory to me were there were a couple of Pinot Noirs that I thought were really really beautiful. Um, just really, um, you know, in a way reminded me. Um, and maybe this isn't a total surprise given um, where some of the winemakers are from, but reminded me of New Zealand, but without kind of the, I've always felt like the New, Ze- New Zealand Pinot Noirs have, have had a tendency to me to be a little, just almost too, um, too pure fruited. Um, they don't have, they, they haven't shown enough kind of earthy notes to me. And I thought this, some of the ones I had were, were still fruit driven, but, but had enough earthiness to kind of feel almost Burgundian without necessarily being clearly from there. Um, some Chardonnay and Syrah. And I mean, I just, a, a couple of ones that I tried, I thought were, were some of the best Syrah I'd had that's not from France. And that's saying a lot because yeah, there's a lot of good know, Syrah thought, producers. Again, yeah, the quality of Syrah was high for sure. Cool. Um, and Rieslings too. Yes. We should mention Rieslings because yes. I, I thought that a lot of the Rieslings were great. And even some sparkling Rieslings, I thought Tantalus' sparkling mm-hmm. Riesling was great. Um, I thought the wines of Synchromesh were a real highlight mm-hmm. um, and they're basically focused almost exclusively on Riesling and, um, and that was, th- those wines were very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, unfortunately there's, <laughs> sadly there's no shortage of great Riesling in the world. There's just a shortage of people who want to pay for it. Um, has been my se- experience, that's true. <laughs> but, uh, but it's not, that's not to discourage anyone from making it. It's, it's delightful. Uh, were there, were there any other, uh, takeaways from that trip for you? Did you, did you have, uh, like uh, any sense of, of, um, or maybe even in the, I guess it's just been a day since the piece ran, but do you get the sense that within the sommelier community in the U S there's any knowledge or interest in, uh, in BC wine? Um, there may very well be interest, but there's very few wines here. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I was actually shocked and how hard it is to get them here. I wanted to send mail some samples back to myself uh, to taste just things that I bought along the way that I didn't have time to taste on the ground. And I was told that it was up to a seven week process to get mm-hmm. the um, you know FDA approval to actually just ship the wines, me as a consumer, shipping them from, from BC to my house in California Um that was unbelievably complicated and uh, and time consuming. So I had to sh- check and schlep six cases of wine wow. on the plane, um, you know, which 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 was an expense in and of itself, but mostly just a pain. Um, but it's it, there's no easy channel uh, to get the wines here, and very few people are are importing into the United States. And then of course, you know, importing the United States is not an easy thing because there's 50 different. Um, you know, legal uh, hurdles to jump through. And so some wineries that I talked to had, they imported maybe a little bit into New York state or they imported maybe a little bit into Washington and Oregon seemed to be in the United States, the best markets for those wines. And of course that makes sense. They're neighbors, but, um, but I think that there, there, that there is an interest. There's just lack of exposure. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem to be the, the sad state of things is just for, for a variety of reasons, financial, uh, bureaucratic etc it's just it is really challenging to get the wines in um anyhow um i think uh sort of a last question i think maybe we'll see um i have for you because it um, is i think very relevant after what we just talked about um how do you recommend or or what do you think of the challenge that a sort of modern 
sommelier or, or wine buyer or even just wine um, lover, um, how do they how do you grapple kind of staying on top of uh, all of the various emerging wine regions throughout the world? I think, I mean, that, that, that's very difficult to do. I think that it's not just about the emerging wine regions, but there's so much information available and coming at you. Uh, I think it's more important now than ever to, to find, you know, one or two writers that you love, one or two merchants that you love, one or two sommeliers that you love and, and, and lean on them to, to inform you about things that you, people that you've identified as having a, a similar palette and then follow their lead. So, um, you know, people are writing about, I see articles in my various feeds every week about obscure regions, you know, the, the emerging wine regions of China, the, 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 the Canary Islands, you know, various places. There's no lack of information out there. Uh, it's just about sorting through all the noise. So, you know, I think Giltum does a very good job of uh, keeping people informed mm-hmm. about the various wine regions of the world especially on an academic level. Um, but it's, again, the app information exists. It's just about finding somebody that you want to follow. So I personally love the writings of Eric Asimov. I think the New York Times does a great job of, of covering a variety of regions around the world. There's a handful of, uh, of great writers to follow. Yeah, no, for sure. There, there is there is information out there, but I guess I, I almost think the other the other challenge is just as mentioned with BC tasting the wine as its own uh, hurdle, and especially you know even you know unless maybe you're in New York City or or one or two other markets where pretty much all the wine in the world seems to end up, um, it is really hard to yeah. get your hands on. Yeah, it's true, and I and I've noticed that even being on the West Coast that there are things that I've had access to in New York City that I don't anymore. Certain wines, certain brands, certain importers um, that just fully don't exist here. And while you know it's easier than ever to buy wines from other states and ship them over, it's you know it's it's not always um, it's not always possible, and it's not always um, economically feasible to to do that. So it's it's difficult. I think you know to go to as many tastings as you can. Um, generally speaking, I would, I'd say I've been surprised even in the most like quote unquote smaller markets, like, uh, you know, Midwest States and Southern States, et cetera. There's usually one or two or three or four or five really great funky little importers, you know, that would love the support and would love to, uh, would, would love the exposure. It's just a matter of, of finding them. So if you can find a, if you're a consumer, if you can find a particularly progressive store or restaurant and ask them where their source is, you can maybe trace that backwards and get access to some tastings or um, things like that. Yeah, good advice. And uh, we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll count on Guildsom to keep us informed. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank uh, you. It was a pleasure talking with you. And uh, maybe we'll find a, a way to taste some BC wine together one of these days. I would love that. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Thanks again to Kelly White for joining me on Disgorged. You can find Napa Valley then and now online wherever you buy your books. And check out her piece on British Columbia at guildsum.com. You can also find her on social media at Kelly White Wine. As for me, I'm on Twitter at ZJabal and on Instagram at Disgorged Wine. Thanks again for listening to Disgorged. And cheers. Ha